HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Rancho Gordo, growing the best and most interesting heirloom beans available. Learn more at ranchogordo.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're spotlighting the people, dishes, and ingredients decolonizing food. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico. I believe that oyster dressing is like the consummate side dish for an amazing fried turkey. What we're doing there is just working the land and we're laughing and we're creating a space for joy. And it's in that that healing occurs for us. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to Cooking in Mexican from A to Z. My name is Aaron Sanchez. And I'm Sarela Martinez. And this wonderful podcast is brought to you by Heritage Radio Network. We're excited. We are coming to you from Roberta's in Brooklyn, and we have the distinct pleasure of welcoming a family member. Right, Mom? Safe yeah, to say. Yeah, she calls me Ma. Exactly. Uh, this is uh, one of the people that I consider not only my hermano, I respect him immensely for who he is and how we supported our family throughout the years. Uh, we've cooked together. We've been in the trenches together. We've known each other forever. Uh, and who I'm speaking of is John Mooney, Chef John Mooney. He's the chef and owner of Bell Book and Candle in the West Village in New York City, as well as a wonderful restaurant in Washington, D.C. called? Bidwell. Bidwell. The Bidwell, exactly. Uh, John is one of the few chefs that I know that can literally cook and play with so many different cuisines all over the world. And he does it with such skill and grace. And uh, he's just an unbelievable man. Uh, he has a he has a rooftop vertical garden for herbs and for vegetables. He is really somebody that's extremely invested in uh, sourcing local, organic, and sustainable ingredients. And he's come up with a very ingenious method of growing that he's going to touch upon. Uh, what we're going to be focusing on on this podcast is Mexican herbs and wild greens. Uh, so, John, let's talk a little bit about uh, your story and how did you start getting in love with, with doing urban gardening, urban farming, understanding the importance of, of that? Well, for, I mean, first off, I grew up in the city. I grew up in Chicago. Uh, it has a lot to offer. Um, 
a lot of inspiration in terms of um, uh, food, ethnic food, sources of food. I mean, there's a lot of great um, places to eat, you know. There's mm -hmm. a lot of options. And, you know, I always grew up around it. And um, I, didn't, I didn't realize the connection I had that I was going to make a life life out of it until well actually i'm fortunate that i did early but i really didn't see it but i i didn't appreciate it until i moved out of chicago to bounce around us cities in america and, and in the world that what a rich and amazing uh you know resource i, I grew up with exactly so you're you're, yeah. you're referring to chicago chicago yeah and i have a connection so so i don't want to forget but my father um and grandfather were in the transportation business which you know we're irish americans um you know settled into chicago sometime in the last hundred years and in the transportation uh what we call um piggyback would be like you know, everything goes on a truck at some point. Mm -hmm. So they were in the, re the railroad business, Santa Fe Railroad, Western Pacific Railroad specifically. And then my dad, my, my family's company was a truck company. And we were in a um, Mexican neighborhood on the west side of Chicago called Summit. Mm -hmm. And Summit is a truly Mexican neighborhood. Spanish is the, is the you know, first language there. And I grew up around that. And so eating Mexican food, and not exactly Mexican food, but um, there'd be some some pretty strong presence and population of uh, guys from Michoacan, guys from Puebla, mm -hmm. and then businesses surrounding that and everybody in this city, you know? And that's where your love for Mexican flavors yeah. was sort of born, right? Yeah, and I didn't realize that I, you know, until years later that I grew up, I grew up there. I love it. Yeah, so, you know, being a cook and then this whole process of evolution of s submerging yourself in food, um, you looked for a source of ingredients, and eventually, through through evolution, you you become the source, and that's just how it all came naturally. It wasn't this long thought thought out thing. It's like where can we get the best, um, keep the prices down, and uh, keep it as close to home as possible until you eventually put it right on location. So you yeah. wanted to be able to be the the source, cut out the middleman so to speak and yeah. then also have a very invested hand on the quality yeah. and, and the growth of your product. So you yeah. came up with an ingenious system. Can you tell our listeners what that system is? Yeah, and that was just a solution to some problems I was having. So I, I had um uh I had a restaurant down in Orlando, Florida which is a great sunlight source. Um but I don't think a lot of people know that um even though it is one of our larger growing states, sun, sunshine state, that it has a load of issues when it comes to pests and disease when it comes to trying to grow all year round. So a lot of people isolate their growing operations to indoor operations, mm -hmm. which I had a big 22-acre, you know, kind of majestic uh, Queen Anne Victorian home, which was a big wedding destination, and, and I was trying to be you know, this one-stop shop for everything I needed in my kitchen and realized that that uh, pipe dream was a very difficult to make a reality. So, so then I just, you know, come across a guy who had developed this system, who was working at Epcot, who cut out his budget. He didn't know what he was going to do with his system. I had a, a real problem um, that I was con con confronted with. And Tim, Tim Blank is his name. And Tim and I... 
you know, he spoke to me about what he was trying to do. What was he going to do with this system he created and what I was going to do with all this land and how to produce and make it a labor model that I could actually cook and chef and have the product I needed right on location and all. And then, you know, from there we applied it to city life, which I'd always been in. And, you know, New York has been my home since 97. So we took the dead space on the roof of my building and applied the vertical growing, you know, space is at a premium in all major cities. So, you know, the skyscraper was a solution, you know, in in our history. Um, and we took that exact same mentality. Okay. So do you grow different things on each skyscraper? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we grow, you know, we dedicate certain uh, of what we call the, the towers to, um, to different plants, you know. So one might be an herb, could be cilantro or whatever. Um, uh, you know, some things grow together. Sometimes we mix them up. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, really where we're going to breach today is the idea of Mexican herbs and wild greens. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you think about the powerhouse Mexican herbs, and obviously you, you would be remiss not to mention cilantro, obviously. Of course, yeah. Coriander is also named. But it's an, indis an indispensable ingredient Veracruz in food. So let's start with the most well-known of Mexican herbs, the cilantro, Mom. Yeah, well, probably the... The most well-known outside of cilantro and Mexican oregano, which is really like a wild mar marjoram, right. is epazote, mm -hmm. the famous stinkweed. Yeah, yeah. You know, what you can even find in Central Park. It grows everywhere except dogs pee in it, so don't pick it there. Right. So normally a good way of using epazote is with, uh, with, with la coche, which is also called smut. So in, in between stinkweed and smut, it doesn't sound like a very delicious dish, but it turns out to be like the Mexican truffle. Right. The combination is amazing. Right. Epazote goes very well with mushrooms. Yeah. And beans. Because yeah. if you I add love it, the beans, yes. If you add it at a certain time, it eliminates that Mexican fruit kind of you know, gassy kind of thing. Yeah, well, they say that, that the epazote is, is used to sort of curb the flatulence that occurs when you have beans. Yeah. Which uh, just is to be clear. Which so, is Mom, real, yeah. yeah, so we were focusing, you know, we talked a little bit about cilantro, really well-known, you know. So probably the second most important herb, I think, in Mexican cooking is hoja santa. Oh, yes. Piper artum or piper sanctum. And the, I first in, encountered it in Oaxaca. And it was this amazing flavor in a, in a restaurant near the square, and there were chilaquiles made with hoja santa. And describe the flavor profile, Mom. Anise. Anise, right? Right. So it uh, reminiscent mildly of tarragon, if you will, but a completely different flavor. Talk a little bit about the lore behind hoja santa and why it was called that. Yeah, we were or the, the holy leaf. Yeah, we were at the market, and one of the ladies said to me, you know why it's called hoja santa? because the Virgin Mary was very poor, and they only had one set of diapers for the baby. So they would wash them, and the, le and the bush was very big, and they would spread them out there, and the, and the diapers would, draw, would dry very fast, and they gave it the name of Hoja Santa, oh. holy leaf. Wonderful. And it's also known as Acuyo in Mexico. Yeah, and it's like, uh, you know, when I first started serving it, nobody, liked it because it was so anise flavored and I would what I would do is that I would take the hoja santa fill it with cheese you know you put cheese on anything people like it some strips of chili fold it and grill it 
and serve it over a tomato sauce. All of a sudden, everybody was having that. You yeah. know, so Oca Santos, I remember I went into one of the shows with Regis Philbin, and he said, so do you adapt the food to the taste of the locals? And I said, no, I cook it the way that I cook it, and if they like it, great, and if they don't like it, too bad. Yeah. So we're talking about epazote, the different ways of using that prior. Now Oca Santa, this really special herb. Uh, it, it looks like a lily pad if you've ever seen it out there in the market. Uh, it's wonderful. And it's flavored, used for many different applications. You can make tamales with it. Uh, sometimes I use fresh masa and then just cover and envelop the masa with the hoja santa and let that steam and it imparts a wonderful anise flavor. Uh, and it's truly something magical. So uh, my mom, my mom's actually made a puree with it, uh, with maybe a little olive oil, a little garlic, and then serve that in marinated cheese with it. Right, mom? Yeah, little bocconcinis. Yeah. I make this. I, I do this with all my herbs. I make herb purees. I take one garlic clove in a food processor with a teaspoon of, of salt, kosher salt, puree it, and one jalapeno, puree it, add the herb, whatever it is, drizzle in uh, olive oil, and I have this amazing flavor thing that I could add like this, or I'd like to marinate cheese or something else, or you know, put it on fish if I'm going to bake it. It's like the most wonderful little tool there so john yes so talking about your vertical your vertical growing operation you've always had a strong affinity for cooking mexican flavors yeah. you and i have the distinct pleasure of having one of the same mentors mark miller yes you work for him at red sage i work for him in san francisco at lungbar uh he is a mad scientist sort of scholar with food um infomaniac yep exactly infomaniac and um Talk to me a little bit about some of the stuff, the greens and herbs that have been allowed to proliferate in your in your vertical growing system that you've had. Which is some of the stuff that's been successful that you've seen do really well? Well, most things do really well. Um, but because there's no resistance from soil, they pull their nutrients quicker. So, you know, for instance, a head of lettuce typically grows in maybe start to finish about 100 days. In the system, I'd have it start to finish in about 60 to 70 days. So it's a more rapid growth, which is great benefit. Um, It's actually easier to maintain. You're not connected to dirt, so it's a little cleaner. But it's also because it's right in front of you and you're not down on the ground on your hands and knees pruning and and all those things are easier to maintain. Just one little mild benefit. But um, uh, you... You can plant multiple seeds in what we in one little what we call a, it's a rock wool. It's a it's um it's spun silicon. So mm. that gives you the medium to to grow in. So you put a bunch of seeds in there and you basically make bunches. So for instance, my mixed greens are mixed greens because I grow ahead of five to seven, eight different seeds, and then so you're crossbreeding in essence. Well, yeah, they're not they're not pollinated. Yeah. Crossbred, but yeah, they're growing together in the same and thing. And so the you cluster, get ahead. Yeah, yeah, you can do that with herbs too. And one That's cool, wonderful, yeah. And we grow a bunch of different varieties of things. And some things you have to look out for is um, climate, you know, heating and and heat and cold and all that. And but uh, I mean, most herbs grow really well. Were you inspired at all by Xochimilco, the Chinampas in Mexico City, where they grew and 
and like a little bit of water, it's like hydroponics. Yeah, well, that's the other thing is the the benefit of, uh, you know, requires um, very little water. Yeah, um, but so it's green in essence in a lot of ways, and, and, and with no pun intended, right? It's very green, green. low impact green. on the environment, right? Yeah. Now, have you felt there's been a sacrifice in flavor at all from something being grown in soil versus yours method? No, in the you know like in the wine production uh, world, um, you know the terroir is everything comes from the soil. So because we don't use dirt doesn't mean we don't have that the elements of soil because there's a nutrient there's a suspension of nutrients that gives it all the things the soil would have so we can model that like if we were getting really particular about the terroir but I I've experienced no you know side by side taste comparison that would say um you know it's better or or flavors different in any way. I wonder if that would, you know, the thing that you're growing different lettuces in one little place yeah. would apply to this tradition in southern Veracruz of cooking with herbs. They don't right. cook with spices there at all. They cook with herbs that are called hierbas de guisar. Sure. And it's got cilantro, culantro, you know, this uh, thyme, because they cook a lot with thyme. Yes. And everything's in a little packet. You buy it. And then you cook with that and not add any spices. Just add the, the bundle of, of yeah. herbs. Yeah, like a sachet in European cooking. And I love the term when we initially spoke about the, the, the beans is the, the, the sachet, the stewing herbs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said about there's, a, a, there's a, an array of herbs that you can cook with that can right. withstand a long cooking process and there's herbs that you add to accent flavor at the very end oh, before exactly. you serve. And exactly. I think it's very important that we make that, dis that distinction on what are some of the things that you could potentially ruin a dish by cooking an herb when it shouldn't be cooked. Right. It gets muddy or cloudy. And cloudy. Right. Well, you know, my mom, whenever she was cooking a dish, she would always end it with a crushed garlic with salt so that the raw flavor of the garlic was present. Right. Yeah, so, you know, the idea with herbs, you know, there are some herbs that can withstand a long cooking process. You know, you mentioned the, the one herb that I would really love to touch upon really quickly is called culantro. It's also known as recao. So if you go to Puerto Rican cooking, they're very known. One of their building blocks of flavor is something called sofrito. But they make something called arrecadito, which is in essence a sofrito, which is a mixture of onions, peppers, and garlic that's cooked low and slow, and you puree that, and that's added to soups and stews. But they have a version of that called recadito, which is a cilantro, which is a lot more durable, uh, culantro, excuse me, which is a lot more durable version of cilantro, and they puree that, and it really is a beautiful building block for flavor. Yeah. Well, the, the thing is that, like in Veracruz, they grow allspice, which is the only native spice in Mexico. Okay. But they don't necessarily use the, the allspice to season. They use the leaves of the tree to season, which is very, very subtle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, pimenta de, bol de bola. Pimenta de bola. One of the things I just wanted to bring up, you know, curiously, because we talked about that puree, herb puree. One of the things that I featured in, in, in my second book, Simple Food, Big Flavor, I came up with a lot of flavor bases. And one of the things that I did was come up with a cilantro and, and pumpkin seed pesto. So I took the idea of the traditional Italian pesto right. and substituted pine nuts for pumpkin seeds. Instead of basil, I use cilantro. And one of the things that I, I do is I add a little bit of vitamin C powder or a, uh, or a tablet of vitamin C, and it helps 
your pesto from oxidizing and you actually get about oh, that's five a great idea. you get about great. five that's more days job. of actual green yeah. vibrant pesto if you add a little bit of vitamin c so that's a little tip for everybody that's making the pesto uh, even if it's a genovese pesto which is really traditional put a little bit of vitamin c power it won't alter the flavor but allow it to be greener you know the other herb that i love is that little baby cilantro that you can find now everywhere right yeah you know where you where you want to eat the root yeah. You know, which yeah. is very intense. Right. And then, but the cilantro tastes completely different. It's like tiny little trendles, feathery little leaves. And I like to use the stems, actually. You know, we're always about no waste, but I I like to use the raw stem. Like if you were making a, like a ceviche mixto, right? Yeah. And you have your diced tomatoes, your diced cucumbers, your chiles, and your, your leaves of cilantro. I like to use the stem and... And, di- and slice that very thin, and you get the little crunch as well. And a concentrated flavor. And I think it's also important to mention it while we're on the topic of cilantro. Cilantro is one of the few fresh herbs that it's it's encouraged to use the stems. Right. You wouldn't do that with something like Italian flat leaf parsley or rosemary, or rosemary, yeah. or thyme, where it's extremely woody, fibrous, and bitter. Yes. Cilantro separates itself from the pack because you can use the stems. Well, since you mentioned rosemary. One of my favorite dishes that I borrowed from Paris is that I take like long shrimp head on, stick a, a, oh, a yes. rosemary stick through the going. whole body, right. brush it with garlic and olive oil, let it marinate, and then grill or pan fry. Yeah. Uh, so now that we've, I think we've understood a little bit of the of the Mexican herb world, right? I mean, we have some more herbs that I think are worth mentioning. Let's talk about something like pepicha or papalo yeah. or some of these different herbs that are... That are chipilin. Y- chipilin. Uh, um, what's the other one that they use? They make the, the, the great soup with in, in Oaxaca, mommy. Chipil. 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 So there's a lot of these very different uh, herbs that are more obscure that have a huge impact um, in, in Mexican cooking. So you're talking about an herb like pepicha, which looks like this little sort of stock with these little baby kind of rosemary-looking leaves, right, Mom? Very intense in flavor, uh, very anise flavor, but very in-your-face. There's a place, there's an herb called papalo for everyone. They, they look like little sort of almost clover leaves, and they're used a lot to refresh the palate. It's kind of challenging to cook with them. If you go to the wonderful, if you go to, to Toluca... And you have the famous chorizo verde, uh, the green chorizo, the longaniza that Uh they make there, which is one of the only places in Mexico where they make green chorizo. It's very typical because it's it's kind of fatty and greasy. They'll they'll serve you some papalo on the side after you've eaten one of these tacos to clean your palate. It's almost like pickled ginger and sushi. So the papalo is really fantastic. So seek that out as well. You want to talk briefly about the chipil, Mom? Yeah, because, you know, that was one of the first things that I discovered when I got to New York. Because I started to go to Queens, to some of those stores, and they had it frozen. And one of the things that I had had in Oaxaca were tamales de chipil. Mm-hmm. So you make the tamal dough, as we spoke yesterday, one pound lard to three pounds masa. And then you fold in the the chipiche raw, you know, this this particular herb, and then you steam them and everything. If you have anything left over, you slice it, saute in a little bit of butter, 
put cream and, ch and cheese on top, and you make a casserole with it. Oh, with and your feeling. Yeah, with the tamales. Yeah, with tamales. So, and this is this is brings me on to something that I really want to make a sort of, we can transition into the greens, okay? In Mexico, you know, a lot of herbs can be used in a, in, in a green sort of capacity as you would a Swiss chard or an escarole or some of the more cooking greens. And let's talk, Mom, about the idea of uh, what we call quelites oh, in, yeah. in Mexico and the idea of using wild greens and, and what those different variations and, and, and forms that the quelites come in. Lamb's quarters. Yeah. I mean, that's what well, this translates into lamb's quarter. Mm -hmm. What other things? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you talk about quelites. It's sort of a, 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 a very... A wild green. A wild green, a dense green that is more akin to being able to be cooked. Like spinach. Like a spinach or a Swiss chard or a chicory. Uh, one of the... Collard. A collard. Uh, and Mexico has a beautiful array of different wild greens that are utilized a lot. And I think it's really important. I think, you know, my mom had a recipe at a restaurant where she would basically cook escarole or chicory with pico de gallo. Right, yeah. mom? And those were your quelites. And it was a great side. Yeah, that's see, That's one of the flavor principles that I like a lot, mm -hmm. like a salsa. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, onions or scallions, garlic and tomato. And you take that, saute that. You can cook zucchini. You can cook greens. You can cook anything and be have a vegetable dish on your table in 10 minutes. Yeah. Now, John, have you have you played around with a lot of different greens, Mexican greens in your time? I mean, they're hard to come by, but what is your affinity to cooking the greens? Have you made casseroles with them? Have you made, you know, what are some of the different applications you've yeah, used? Yeah, I mean, when I look at something, um, a term I've been using lately is like the vertical integration. Okay, so you start with a seed and then the leaf and then raw and then cooked. So I look at it, how many variations can we use this? How is it done well? How do we apply it? So it's like if you if you have some ingredients that you've never worked with it, you don't have a reference point or, or an education to it, then, you know, in the kitchen, yeah, we experiment. We, you know, you just kind of go with what you know. So you start to use it in different things. Now, I don't have anything that comes exactly to mind, but I love to braise greens though like, yeah. you know i love applying those things that you think would typically go with like say a a meat or you know a stew like a like a lamb shank or a short rib and apply that to um a green a, greens. a yeah. dense green like a collard yeah or even kale you yeah. know like yeah so you're you're you uh your your onions your garlic and uh and then stew that for long periods of time on low heat and then maybe finish with something like a splash of malt vinegar or a uh, squeeze of lime or lemon. And then you have a dish that is a singular, basically a singular ingredient, or let's say uh, the main focus of a dish. And it comes out like like a stew, like a one-pot cooked dish where it has all these complexity of flavors and is treated in a low, slow, long period of time cooking. And you have something that's very, very hearty. You know, when we, were, when we were growing up, my mom used to give us a cooking class every afternoon at the ranch because there was nothing to do at Ranch in Chihuahua. She was just at 7,000 feet. And the only herb we could find were bay leaves. So my mom used to love to make bay leaf tea so that she could control the amount of flavor. So uh, she was oh, giving us a recipe, and, and she would always end with, and one small leaf of bay leaf. So we would all be ready. 
because she was getting to the end, we would say, and one small, you know, hita chiquita de laurel, and then I said, go to hell. Yeah, I love <laughs> that. Well, right. you know, and also Laura. some of those greens that, that John had mentioned, Chef John had mentioned, also separate themselves from the pack because you can actually put meat product, fat, bacon, pancetta. Exactly, yes. Uh, guanciale, whatever it is. And some of these greens can take a long cooking process. And for the novice cook out there, don't be afraid to take a very dense green and let it cook, stems and all, for an extended period of time. And I think that's important. So don't be challenged. To Chef, Chef John's point, you can't cook greens for an extended period, okay? Uh, one of the herbs that I really want to talk about that I think is very unique and is an absolute uh, beautiful element of Mexican cooking is the dry avocado leaf. Oh, yes. And I really want to, I really want to touch about that fresh or dried. And mom, I'm hoping that you can kind of shed some light on this wonderful ingredient. Oh, my God. I love, I mean, I could talk about avocado leaves all the time. You know, and there's a little town in Oaxaca called Sole de Vega. And there they make the tamales with a regular dough between two avocado leaves. And then you steam them. And the flavor is intense and absolutely wonderful. But they usually use the hoja de aguacate in barbacoas. Yep. Oh, yes. So they make, a bed, they make a bed of the, of the avocado leaf, marinate the, the meat, cover it with more avocado leaves, and slow cook it. And that's one thing that you can do at home. You know, you can just get a big pot and cook. There's one use for that slow cooker that somebody convinced you to, to buy and that you never use. Right, yeah. <laughs> so you're saying that some people get those little slow pot, the crock pot slow, slow cookers. This Christmas. is an opportunity to use it <laughs> yeah. and put mm -hmm. some of that avocado leaves in that slow beef braise or lamb or whatever. Yeah, you have. yeah. and then cook it slowly because it, it's so aromatic. Yeah, uh, but let's go a little bit deeper into avocado leaves, mom. So, I mean, for people, you know, avocado leaves can be poisonous if okay. they're fresh. I didn't know that. Yeah. And the Spanish, the, what's the Spanish word for the avocado leaf? Hoja de aguacate. Okay. So aguacate. I think it's important to mention that, you know, if you have an avocado tree at home, <laughs> just don't start yanking off leaves and thinking you're going to be okay. The drying process renders it palatable and consumable. Well, it depends on the it depends well, on the avocado variety. Yeah. The only ones that are edible are the Haas and the Fuerte. Yeah. You know, those big ones are not edible. Mm. And, and granted, you would have to eat a whole sack full of them for it to be poisonous. You wouldn't want to eat them in any case. Exactly. Now, what do avocado leaves look like? So everyone knows. They look like a huge bay leaf, right, Mom? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're green and big. I mean, when they're dry, they, they turn color. Uh, they look more like a very light green, like a fatigue color, if you will. Exactly. And uh, But they're easily available. And, you know, for everyone out there that wants to experiment with this ingredient, you know, more than likely 99% of the time you're going to find it dried. Uh, so just be aware of that. It looks like an oversized bay leaf. Uh, it's available on many different outlets, Mexican grocer. Uh, just look it up. It's a great ingredient. Think of it as a bay leaf, but it's essential. They're primarily used for barbacoas or for braises. They impart a beautiful anise-flavored, very aromatic, as my mom said, and it's something that I really encourage uh, all of you guys. If you have a, a a great braise recipe, put some avocado leaves in there. Yeah, a bed. A, a bed. A bed. Exactly.
This episode is brought to you by Rancho Gordo. Over the past 19 years, Rancho Gordo has led the revival of heirloom beans, taking the lowly bean from a healthy but neglected member of the vegetable family to a near superstar status ingredient. From growing the best and most interesting beans available to making sure all crops are fresh and a pleasure to cook with, Rancho Gordo's mission is to encourage cooks to experience and enjoy the unique flavors of heirloom beans. Rancho Gordo produces nearly 30 varieties of heirloom beans and lentils, as well as corn, grains, chilies, and other cooking ingredients. You can learn more at ranchogordo.com. That's R-A-N-C-H-O-G-O-R-D-O.com. How about mint? Yeah. Well, let's talk. Oh, ab- yeah. Let's talk about yerba buena, and let's talk about mint because I think this is something that's uh, a little bit misunderstood. There are several variations of mint. We have what you call spearmint that has a little bit more of a waxy or dark green. You have the little fluffy green mint that's more common. We have chocolate mint. We have, you know, pepper, peppermint. We have yeah. all these different varieties of mint, and it is a beautiful ingredient that I think is overlooked when it comes to cooking and adding in different applications. It's not just for dessert. Let's talk about the idea of mint. My mom's coleslaw. Yeah. The best coleslaw ever. It's not really a slaw because it doesn't have mayonnaise, but it's like a cabbage salad, very thinly sliced, fresh mint, scallions, garlic, just crushed like that, a little bit of vinegar and olive oil, and you, you serve it with tacos, with gorditas, as a salad. It's sensational. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this. So at my restaurant, Johnny Sanchez, hopefully all you guys will come visit, we have an albondiga taco. All right, so I've kind of taken a little bit of my mom's, uh, my grandmother's recipe for albondigas, uh, a little bit of influence from you, mom, and I serve these albondiga tacos or meatball taco balls, these meatball tacos with a little bit of, of chopped mint. Talk a little bit about the mint at the ranch and how it grew. There was a one herb we always had, we always had available because there was a, there was a, 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 a little. Uh, like a faucet there that was always dripping and you had this whole thing of of mint right out there so if we wanted albondigas we would always go out and get some mint and that was when my mom used to come here that was the one thing i wanted her to make some albondigas yeah what is an albondiga it's a meatball Mm -hmm. and we used to have an aunt who was kind of chubby and we still (laughs) call her the albondiga Great. So, so what is? They used to call me albondiga. Yeah. So what? So what is? What is an albondiga consist of? It's pork, and my mother used to thicken it with masarina or masa, mm-hmm. just garlic in there and mint. Exactly, and just sort, just sort of a Mexican version of, of of a meatball. I love meatballs. I think everybody does. Talk to me a little bit of how you use mint in your cooking. I know a lot of people associate mint with lamb. I love mint, and it's not something I I got. I had always had an association with like in cooking it it came to me later but I love um I love that freshness of it. I mean you you definitely it definitely has a presence in anything it touches. Mm-hmm. Um I love the combination of say a mint a basil or cilantro. Mm-hmm. I like some raw like raw fish dishes. I love to mix it together. I'm I'm actually doing a vegetable curry right now which is a pumpkin curry for winter and we finish that with cilantro and mint leaves and it really brings the aromatics to all those uh, stewed vegetable exactly. curry, um, fenugreek cardamom, like some 
some things that are more bold in flavor. It matches it well, but it still brings a fresh, element. fragrant element. Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, it really, it really, uh, it's a delicate strength to it. Yeah, yeah. And I and I, it's something so simple that I do is at our, at our restaurant. We're very diligent about our greens and for salads, and we love to rip mint and cilantro. Yes, and maybe perhaps a little bit of dill. And all these herbs mixed into your salad mix, and all for you for all of you guys listening at home. There really is a true art to collecting the proper greens mix. And you know what you said—a very important word there, ripped. Yes. yes. Because you don't want to chop yep. herbs. mint because it becomes black. Exactly. Right. So you're you have to bruise it. You right. have to just cut it off. That little thing, and then it, you have all the freshness and wonderful aroma. And yeah, you rip your herbs when you're doing a salad prep, whether it's mint, basil, cilantro. Just kind of treat it uh, so you're not breaking down its natural flavor properties. Yeah. I'm so impressed, honey. You know so much. <laughs> <laughs> so it has been an absolute pleasure to have you here, John Mooney. You, I'm honored. Chef, you have been someone that I've always, always admired for your unbelievable diversity in cooking uh the 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 influences the experience you've had is truly unique you've you've cooked in ireland you've cooked in india you've cooked all over the world and you are truly a citizen of the world and you do that and you interpret like it through food global citizen yeah it's really awesome and thank you so much for imparting your your knowledge and also your way of thinking about herbs mexican greens it, it you are a true ambassador uh, for our cuisine and our culture. So thank you, John Mooney, for being here. Um, and we thank all of you guys for listening uh, for this wonderful podcast of Mexican Herbs and Wild Greens. And please stay tuned for the next podcast of Cooking in Mexican from A to Z. My name is Aaron Sanchez. And I'm Sarela Martinez. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros. Hasta luego. Cooking in Mexican from A to Z is powered by Simple Cast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without your support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Entrañas